1: Hello and welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Foo, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we talked with Allstate CEO Thomas Wilson about his plan for how the corporate world can save capitalism. But we started things off with the insurance executive by asking about Hurricane Dorian. At its height, the storm registered as one of the strongest ever and is one of only eight hurricanes to have winds reach 180 miles per hour in the Atlantic. So we asked the Allstate CEO just how bad insured losses could be.
2: Well, it's really hard to tell uh, because the storm changes so often. Like, for example, people didn't expect it to sit over the Bahamas, and it did for hours and hours and just destroying the place. Normally they move faster than that. So it's hard to tell, but it looks like first, you know, I, the damage down in the Bahamas, is, you point out, is really big. We don't insure ha- anybody down there, so I don't have any on-site views of what it is, but it looks bad. Uh, we moved about 800 people into Florida because we thought it might hit Florida. But now, of course, it's turning. uh... uh, east and so it looks like it's going to miss florida at least the biggest part of it it may get the carolina so it's hard to tell exactly what it is what you do know is that the united states anyway has dodged a bullet because these storms are big these days and this is really all about climate change. Mm.
3: And it's about trying to put the relevant insurance programs in place and help in place. There's been much talk about the National Flood Insurance Program, something that is looking to be reformed at the moment. Where do you stand on that? Is it being done quickly enough and what changes do you want to see?
2: Well, uh, first, we think the flood program needs to be revised. Uh, The government owes it about, it owes the government about $24 billion. So it obviously has not collected as much money as it paid out. And people keep building houses in the same places again. So it's got to be fixed. But when you look at it at a broader standpoint, really, we have to deal with severe weather. Uh, And we have this ad where Dennis Haysbert's sitting in the middle of this uh, storm. He says this is a one in a 500-year storm. The only issue is there's been 26 in the last 10 years. Whether it's a wildfire, it's hail, it's hurricanes. And people are not protected from floods. They're not protected from giant hail. So we have to help them get better prepared. We have to build the houses differently. We have to adjust to the fact that the weather's different. And that's a comprehensive thing, which the government has to help support.
4: It certainly is. Well, we also want to talk to you about American businesses and jobs, because you wrote a piece in the New York Times about how businesses need to focus on more than making profits. You said American businesses are sending a clear message. They need to focus on doing more than making profit. Investors in these companies should ask management and boards of directors to focus on jobs. American businesses prosper by asking tough questions, creating specific goals, and executing plans. Now, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which you chair, revised its purpose last year to focus on job creation. What specific action have you seen members take so far? Because they all involve trade-offs, I just want to get a sense of what's been done already.
2: Well, you know, the, when you step back, first let me start with, I'm a big believer in business. I mean, businesses, we create prosperity, we take iron rocks, we make skyscrapers, we take, you know, chemistry and make life-saving drugs, we take service businesses like ours, we help people res- get restored after hurricanes like Dorian and so business does really good yet you find a bunch of millennials about half the millennials are like questioning whether capitalism works and you say well why is that like how can it be that we can be so good and they can question and i think it's because we're not creating enough jobs we clearly serve our customers well we clearly know how to make a profit But people want to be employed, and when they look to businesses, they say, how many jobs you're creating? And that's part of our role, and we need to step up and make that as important as the other things we do.
3: But at a time where we're all talking about artificial intelligence, robots making life more efficient, hopefully reducing all our working hours to but you know, four-day weeks. Tom, I'm interested in how your investors are going to get behind this, when clearly human workers are in many ways a lot less efficient.
2: Well, businesses have to walk and chew gum at the same time. At the same time, we're using artificial intelligence like we're using in our business to take people out, reduce costs, give our customers a better, a better value, and that we can grow faster. There's investors like that, and they support that. So we have to do that. At the same time, Investors want us to grow in other ways, find new markets, create new products. And we need to do both of those, because if we don't have a healthy economic environment, there's not going to be an opportunity to grow. And you know, people, it's going to be like a tsunami Mm. going through the service business, what's happening with artificial intelligence. And we're going to have to figure out, how do we keep these people employed? It means creating new jobs. And that just means finding new things for them to do, how to harvest their talent. We can do it but it requires us to focus on it.
4: It requires you to focus on it. It also requires buy-in to a large extent from all the stakeholders, including shareholders. What kind of benchmarks do you propose then if we're going to morph capitalism and and how investors measure it? Um, What benchmarks do you propose and how do they fit in with profit growth or profit margins?
2: Well, it's a really good question because Uh, If you look at profit, which of course is very important to all of us, it's measured, it's like a high art form. You know, there's like one and a half million public accounts. The SEC's got all kinds of documents and rules about measuring it. And when you say, well, businesses are also supposed to create jobs, it's say, well, what's the standard? There really isn't a standard and we need to come together and say how are we going to have this how are we going to measure ourselves and that begins with dialogue so one of the things i've said is look i've been going to boardrooms for 30 plus years every board meeting we talk about profit for sure every business i've ever been around you talk about profit it should because it's really important if you said how many board meetings do you talk about creating jobs it'd be a fraction of that Mm -hmm. and yet americans if you ask americans more people think businesses are supposed to be creating jobs and making money we got to do both but if we don't have the dialogue we won't get to the measurement we eventually need that measure so we can start paying people on how many jobs did you create
3: and so what will that involve tom will it involve retraining will it involve education from a business-led investment point and where does also immigration fit into all of this because you need the right skilled labor and are you happy for it? immigration to continue as, as it yeah. has been to fill those sorts of high-level, high-paid jobs?
2: Well, Caroline, I would say, first thing, business has been creating jobs for centuries, right? Like, we know how to do that. It's about new products, new markets. New markets are important, so immigration is important if, because it's an indicator of open markets. You were talking about Brexit earlier. We have a big operation in Northern Ireland. We need people to come from other parts of Europe to staff that organization so we can do our job and create new jobs. So it's about open markets, it's about using, creating new markets, but also I think we have to lean in on employee training. Uh, And we're starting to call it employability. So we might not be able to make sure you have a job with us, but we want to make sure you are employable someplace else. So we're going to teach you about data and analytics. We're going to teach you about technology so that you can have a career. And we think that'll help us attract better people.
4: Does it frustrate you, Tom, that Companies, the private sector needs to lead the way on this, creating jobs, making sure that it's a priority uh, without the help of the public sector. You could talk about this when it comes to jobs, you could talk about this when it comes to social policy as well. For instance, Walmart uh, making the decision on its own to restrict sales of ammunition, for instance.
2: Yeah. Well, I think you're seeing uh, greater uh, corporate responsibility on the broader issues. Uh, in really around the world, and I think that's because the pile of problems keeps growing, and uh, we've sort of outrun our supply lines with the government and nonprofits. And so, businesses are saying, We got to do this. It's in our best interest to make sure we have a robust economy. It's in our best interest to make sure, as investors, we have a giant investment portfolio to make sure that there are people to buy products that the companies we invest in need. So, businesses are stepping up. I'm not really frustrated by it, I'm just like, It's just us, let's just do it. You know, you can't expect the government to create jobs and you can't expect nonprofits to create jobs. So it's really the responsibility of business to do that.
1: And we got to check on this week's biggest geopolitical developments with Tina Fordham, Managing Director and Chief Global Political Analyst at Citigroup. Tina took us through this week's Brexit drama and told us why she thinks the UK is having a, quote, political nervous breakdown. But we first started by asking her about the US-China trade war. Officials in Washington and Beijing have finally managed to agree on a date to restart negotiations with Chinese Vice Premier Liu He set to visit Washington in early October. Those headlines helped give US stocks a boost when they crossed, but we're also starting to see some data that seems to suggest there's some tangible trade impact on the economy. So we started by asking Tina just how negative this impact could get.
5: Well, it depends on whether we can see a postponement of the tariff scheduled for October. But one of the things I think uh, market participants overestimate is is Trump's, Trump's ability to make a deal happen, right? There are various parties in the dispute. The Chinese are are irked by all accounts. We just heard your correspondent saying Chinese want to see significant progress. And don't forget that with U.S. elections coming up, uh, it may be the uh, perspective in Beijing that waiting to see how long uh, Trump is is in office uh, affects their negotiating um, calculus.
3: Should we not, though, underestimate the desire for Trump to get a deal ahead of those Mm. 2020 elections? Would we get something that maybe isn't really a tangible deal but is certainly sold as one?
5: Certainly. Um, And we've seen that movie before, right? And uh, markets have some, you know, some form uh, on this fact that even a ceasefire uh, is perceived as positive news as is just the mere announcement of, of meeting but it doesn't take away the the fact that um, we haven't you know Trump has not made a, a comprehensive breakthrough NAFTA hasn't been uh, agreed mm-hmm. to either and the clock is really winding down for uh, for Congress to approve anything before elections
1: well I'm wondering about the flip side I mean someone making an argument to me this week that maybe Trump doesn't want a deal before the election. He ran 2016 in part on building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, playing up fears of a uh, immigrant invasion. Is it possible that he runs the 2020 election on um, this is we're in a battle with china and if a deal yes, would take that and through, i'm but-
5: going to ring you yeah. know serious concessions i think that that fits in much more with what mm-hmm. i believe us objectives are mm-hmm. again market participants um, you know like a deal because they're watching the s&p uh, china is named as a strategic competitor in the us national security strategy uh, i think we should be understanding these tensions as about much more than buying so- soybeans or ip or sort of short-term objectives. The U.S. wants to slow down China's rise, and um, that's that's really what is going on here.
6: When you look at the interplay, though, with other world Mm -hmm. leaders—not just uh, Xi Jinping, but the leaders in Europe—they're also having to deal with uh, the U.S. and trade policy. They don't mind the United
5: States doing the heavy lifting. Well, exactly.
6: And so I'm wondering, though. Welcome. Well, and then I'm wondering, though, then how does that factor into uh, the fact that we are headed into a U.S. election? Uh, Are uh, these other nations know that, and how are they going to sort of play either? Against that or to it, uh, to sort of extract what they want out of this administration or out of the next administration.
5: Well, if we're talking about Trump's fellow G seven leaders, um, none of them want to be on the receiving end of, of U uh, S. tariffs either. Don't forget that um, steel tariffs, uh, auto tariffs, um, the possibility of, of more U S. action against Europe uh, is something that's very real. So I think that you'll find European leaders being being quiet on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Joe's point is, is really important. You know, the value to to the Trump um, campaign of continuing to be tough on China as we head into elections uh, also bears fruit and is, is one of the few areas that's actually uh, popular on a bipartisan level.
3: Now, let's talk about Brexit because the disarray in London continues. The showdown over Brexit got personal. This time as UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's own brother quit the government in protest over Brexit strategy. That's while the House of Lords is debating a bill to block a no deal in Brexit, and Johnson is arguing for a snap general election.
5: I hate banging on about Brexit. I don't want to go on about this anymore. And I don't don't want an election at all. I don't want an
7: election at all. But frankly, I cannot see any other way. The only way uh, to get this thing done, to get this thing moving, is to make that decision. He hates
3: banging on about Brexit. I mean, what more is there to British politics at the moment than Brexit?
5: Nothing else, and there won't be anything else besides Brexit. Besides Brexit, even if we were to leave on October thirty first, which is now much less likely. I said we because I'm based in the UK.
1: I'd slip. Is, is this a constitutional crisis, or is this just? There's all kinds of weird things that happen in the way the British government works, and it's kind of working how it's supposed to, even if it's sort of pushing the extreme edges of how parliament typically works.
5: Well, it's extra hard to define a constitutional crisis in a country without a written constitution. Uh, What does that mean? It means that the British constitution has evolved over a period of 700 years uh, with bits and pieces of of rulings and judgments. Uh, But you might be referring to Duncan Weldon's uh, piece about... um, the fact that we don't have uh, you know, the military out in the streets suggests that um, we're not in a constitutional crisis yet in the UK. But where we certainly are is what I would call a political nervous breakdown.
6: So when we look at what's going on there, though, is there going to be real spillover to the EU if that relationship is severed in the way that everyone thinks it's going to be at the end of October?
5: And Brexit has really become a footnote to other European Union member states. It always comes uh, lower down on the list of, of topics to discuss. Um, the EU has been consistent about wanting a, a resolution, but the developments in the last two days, Parliament's only been in session two days in London, uh, really suggest that we are further from a resolution.
3: And political nervous breakdown, where are you, what are your, the number one question then coming from clients? Is it, is it how much uncertainty is there? How much uncertainty will there remain? What, what to do in this current breakdown?
5: What's so difficult about Brexit is that it's impossible to draw a decision tree about the outcomes. It just looks like <laughs> a bowl of spaghetti. And the other point is that there's kind of an inverse relationship between how much time it takes to explain Brexit relative <laughs> to yeah. the wider economic impact. So to to your previous point, um, what's the potential for a Brexit effect for, for the rest of the European Union? It's the worst for the UK. It's quite bad for Ireland. Um, it is, you know, we think it's uh, less impactful for the European Union, but one of the most important um, byproducts, I think, of the, of the Brexit kind of, um, uh, you know, spectacle is that leaving the European Union looks extremely unpalatable now yes. to any other country.
1: Real quickly, will the UK be in the EU on November 1st? Yes. Really? Oh, there you go. Big call there.
3: And you think it will push out, what, just by three months? or a- It will. So the, I think the very
5: short explanation, as clear as I can be, is that Labour will hold out in supporting uh, new elections until it gets what it wants, which is... Um, for the Prime Minister to go to the European Union and get an extension agreed, which requires all the EU27 to um, to assent. I think they will. That will push out cliff-edge Brexit probably to January. I think at this point, we're looking to get uh, elections in November That's not good for Boris Johnson, which is why he wants them earlier. Political capital and approval ratings are pretty much a diminishing asset. For him, the sooner the better. He will go down in history as a prime minister suffering four out of four legislative defeats in the first two days parliament's in session.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: Then we spoke with Ed Lopez, the head of ETF product at VanEck, about their new SolidX Bitcoin trust. Ed has been pushing the idea of a Bitcoin ETF for a while now, but the SEC has maintained objections to the idea, including concerns about transparency and the health of the underlying market. So instead, VanEck is launching an ETF-like product specifically aimed at institutions. It's the first of its kind, and it's allowing for shares to be created and redeemed like ETFs. But unlike an ETF, it isn't listed on a national exchange. We started by asking Ed to explain how the product would work and why it's legal.
8: This is uh, taking advantage of uh, Rule 144A of the 19 Securities, uh, 1933 Act, um, and amended by the, the Jobs Act, which basically allowed for certain restricted securities to be traded broker to broker. And We're taking advantage of that opportunity uh, to offer shares of the trust to qualified institutional buyers. Now, these are the largest of the large institutional buyers, not not just accredited investors, but huh. uh, institutional buyers that manage more than $100 million in, oh, wow. in total assets. And-
6: And so when the institutional buyers have this, I mean, is there some sort of second order effect or is this only the transaction has to be limited that kind of stops once it gets to that institution?
8: Well, so the interesting thing and one of the reasons why it's likened to an ETF, it's not an ETF, but it's likened to an ETF, Mm -hmm. because it has uh, the open end creation and redemption ability like an ETF, it will be quoted on OTC links. It's on the uh, -the over-the-counter market. Mm -hmm. So there will be a secondary market. So it could look like an ETF in that that form as well.
1: There exists uh, GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, kind of similar. How is this different? That is also an exchange-traded Bitcoin product that's OTC, so how is this different?
8: Well, that trades uh, over-the-counter as well. It's open to private placements on a periodic basis, but that's for for qualified investors or or certain high-net-worth investors. This is for qualified institutional buyers. Uh, it will trade openly in the secondary market, day to day, so there'll be day to day liquidity. Uh, and there is that open-end creation and redemption facility, th- which should allow it to trade the market price to trade closer to NAV.
1: Right. So the GBTC often trades with a large premium uh, over NAV. This, because of the open-ended creation redemption, should be much tighter.
8: It should be over time. If the, yeah. if the market develops and, and trading activity develops, yes. We believe so. All
6: right, so on the retail side, though, I mean, have you completely given up on that? I mean, what's, why do you think it's taking so long to get some sort of approval?
8: Well, you know, I think the SEC has their legitimate concerns about transparency, about the underlying markets. I think the industry has made a lot of effort and has, has progressed quite a bit in terms of addressing those markets. And I think our product uh, and the way it addresses and prices Bitcoin also addresses those issues. Um, but this is, we, we, we haven't abandoned This is a parallel path. We've, we've been working on this for quite a while. And I wouldn't look at it as a, as a workaround, but just a step forward, in this case, in the institutional channel.
1: Now, let's talk about the demand for this product. Because if you talk to crypto people, they're always like, the institutional money is coming the institutional money is coming that was the mantra at the end of 2017 throughout 2018 meanwhile there are more and more custodial solutions that would theoretically allow uh, institutional money to take place how much of a um, market gap do you think this product will address in terms of money that's theoretically on the sidelines that's not in bitcoin that would be with the right product
8: we believe this could be a game changer for institutions because there hasn't been an institutional quality vehicle for Bitcoin access. Bitcoin is not, uh, is not clearable. It uh, doesn't have traditional custody solutions as of yet. Uh, and it forces institutions to open up uh, accounts on different OTC platforms. And so what this does is bring all of that into one security that they can trade on their traditional brokerage firm. They can use the same processes, trading and clearing processes, that they're used to with any other security.
6: So what type of uh, security or safety or, I guess, insurance uh, is sort of provided to make sure that, you know, folks have some sort of confidence in what's
8: yeah, uh, definitely. That's one of the main aspects of this of this product as well is is storage. We're using or the trust is using best practices in terms of Bitcoin storage, plus insurance. And okay. one of the key features of of the trust is insurance from a syndicate of A issued or A rated raters.
1: Could you see yourself doing more coins uh, down the road? Uh, potentially, yeah. If this is successful. I think this particular uh, structure
8: provides that framework for potentially more institutional level uh, product.
1: Just going back to the pure retail one, as you mentioned, that track still continues. How far do you think the gap is right now between what the SEC wants to see in terms of the development of the market, transparency, so forth, and what you and other companies that are trying to offer this product have right now? Do you believe that's getting narrowed? I
8: think it's getting narrowed. I think there are uh, avenues for which to price Bitcoin in a more consistent way. Uh, As you talked about earlier, the custody solutions are developing, and I think in in the coming year we'll see more viable custody solutions that will will be an option for for a retail product.
1: And finally, we took a deeper dive into the plant-based protein craze with Jonathan McIntyre, the CEO of Motif Foodworks. The biotech company is working with food innovators to enable them to make their own products better by improving nutrition, taste, and affordability of animal-free and plant-based proteins. We started by discussing the market for plant-based proteins and asked Jonathan who the key consumers here and if it was broader than just vegetarians and vegans.
7: The, this movement is greater than just a, an individual pocket of people. Um, I think there are actually four factors that are really uh, driving this opportunity and those four factors are first, you know, vegan, even though it's small, it is growing and it is attracting a lot of people. Uh, two, there are people very interested in knowing how their food is made, where it's made and what's its impact on the environment. and people have become very aware that agriculture, specifically animal agriculture, has a big drain on the environment. Third, a lot of people are interested in eating more plant-based foods because um, they've been told that it's healthier for them and that they should include more plant-based products in their uh, diet. And then finally, four, with any other trend that occurs in the food industry. Mm -hmm it's become cool um, we would call it badge value a lot of people are interested in it they want to be seen doing it they know other famous people are doing it our hypothesis at uh, motif foodworks is that those are all great movements but what also has to occur is those products have to continue to con- taste better Um, and also become more affordable right now many of those products are priced at a very significant premium and those are both things that the food industry requires
1: so Jonathan talk to us specifically about motif what's your role in the whole process and what kinds of clients do you work with
7: So we are an ingredients innovation company. Our objective is to use technology uh, to discover and pioneer the development of new food experiences with specifically to focus on improving the taste, the texture, and the nutrition of plant-based foods. And to do that by using science and technology to really understand how food is uh, structured, how those structures then uh, affect the taste and other properties that lead to the sensory experience, and be able to do that in a way that improves the experience for the consumer without using animal-based ingredients. And so what types of companies are you working with here? So we would be working with all the majors and all the minors. Uh, Let's face it, um, everybody wants to get into this space. The growth and the interest is incredible. So uh, without naming names, obviously, we're talking to most of the major food companies. But we're also very interested in working with smaller guys. Um, My experience in the food industry tells me that they will move faster. They will do a launch and learn approach. And those brands and those ideas will often be the uh, starting point by which other bigger companies then come in and s- expand those and develop those even further. So. We're, we're gonna focus on working in both areas.
1: Jonathan, I wanna ask a question about sort of, I don't know if it's the, an ethics related question, but you identified several uh, big trends, working in favor of plant-based proteins and finding new ways through science to develop proteins that don't have maybe as much animal cruelty or environmental impact. Nonetheless, we live in a time of a lot of suspicion about big tech and algorithms and not really knowing what's behind the scenes and the products that were served up. And should people be concerned of some of these ideas now moving into the food space where something is served up to us, but we really don't know what it is. Like if I get ground beef at the store, I know what ground beef is. I may not know everything about where it came from, but I know what ground beef is. If I get some sort of vegan ground beef alternative that was made in a lab with ingredients that were developed from peas and yeast and all other stuff, should I feel totally secure that, you know, uh, of what's in it?
7: Well, first of all, it's really important that the companies working in this space are transparent and that they are being very clear about the ingredients, the processes, how they're making their food products. Um, there is no substitute. A Consumer absolutely has the right to know what's in their food and to know how their food was prepared and what are the constituents. So I, I'm a firm believer that um, the first conversation between us and the consumer should be uh, about creating trust and that we will be transparent and tell you exactly what we're doing.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.